This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. You join me for The Bigger Picture, where I am joined by Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, so where are we going to be? Well, I sort of know where we're going to begin, but you tell me. Well, we, of course, have to start with uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. Um, um uh platinum jubilee this these events always have a, a special resonance in my family because um my parents met in st james's the eve of the queen's coronation oh. and of course both my parents sadly uh passed away they died uh last year and so there is a sort of poignancy to this um um and we are having a family gathering and that's partly because when my parents died of course it was very difficult for people to get together mm. and if you were indeed awake and so it's the conjuncture of this platinum jubilee and and sort of remembering my parents that um that, that this platinum jubilee is indeed so special and and i've been watching um uh, andrew mars series on television uh, in recent evenings, talking about this second great age, as he puts it, of, of the Elizabethans, um, where, and, and it's based, the series is based on a book he's done, an excellent book, um, where he really talks about some of the characters that have made the Elizabethan age. And he he's almost avoided um, uh, the really well-known and the famous people and the obvious people. Mm. But he's touched on, for example, people who died at the Grenfell Tower incident or people um, uh, who have made uh, unusual contributions to art and culture. Tracy Emin is one of them. And what he has really, what his, his real argument is that, that throughout the Elizabethan age, this period, um, uh, Britain has not only transitioned from being a sort of powerful imperial power uh, to being um, um, uh, a sort of more European and Atlantic power, but that 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 Britain has become much more individualistic. And actually, um, this second Elizabethan period has unleashed um, a, a lot of unpredictability and diversity and talent within the population. And he says that when the Queen came to power, you know, things were fairly stolid and predictable in Britain. Mm -hmm. you know, if you wanted a sandwich, well, there were two types, weren't there? There was ham or cheese. And if you were really robust, there was ham and cheese. Now, all on white, and all on white bread. And all on white bread. And, and, and now, of course, it's paninis, but all kinds of things. And, mm -hmm. and what do we mean by a sandwich? And, um, and then there's the open sandwiches from Northern Europe and, and all kinds of fillings from every continent in the world. So, so, um, uh, so it, it's a fascinating subject to see how we as a country have evolved, not sort of in the name of the great and the good or the obvious subjects, but, it, it, but in terms of often the hidden things um, that we don't reflect on. And it, it, it is fascinating because he's right. Um, 
we've moved from this very predictable and solid, stolid age of the 1950s into a Britain in the early 21st century, which might not be a military powerhouse, but it is uh, an absolute beacon of creativity right across theatre, television, um, cinema, you know, uh, uh, finance, um, you know, all the creative areas, all the service industries, management consultancy, right through to still that sort of almost Victorian inventiveness. Lots of people in their garden shed mm. doing slightly weird and obsessive things, but in fascinating ways. And um, and and so he says that, that the real conclusion is that at one level, we've become slightly more American in, in that we have become mm. a lot more individualistic, but above it all, we've become a lot more creative and we do diversity really, really well. In fact, we, under the reign of Queen Elizabeth, we've probably come to do diversity and that creative bit, that, that almost punk lack of predictability more than any other advanced or developed country in the world. So there's a degree of anarchy in all this, mm. which um, I think makes it fun. <laughs> I don't put you down as being an anarchist, but I'm sure you've had your moments of rebellion in the past, and certainly nonconformist, I suppose I would, I would always think you'd be. Well, indeed, I mean, there is also that weird moment, isn't there, in the, in, the, in, in, in the Silver Jubilee, if you remember when the Sex Pistols um, uh, had their, um, had that sort of number one hit that apparently at the time the BBC couldn't play mm. um, um, uh, God, their version of God Save the Queen. What's extraordinary, of course, is that now punk rock has sort of been packaged and commodified and sort of exported worldwide as somehow a great British triumph. I mean, you see, for example, young Japanese kids wearing punk gear while they simultaneously you know wear images of 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 the queen um indeed with a safety pinter and there's, yes, there's a way yes. that even these rebellious uh and more anarchic moments are ultimately captured dare i say it by the establishment even though the establishment of course is constantly moving and is constantly being remade itself yes one doesn't imagine that um the sex pistols uh, song was played very much within buckingham palace at least not a, above stairs um, well, 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 can't imagine her being a, a fan necessarily, can you? Or maybe you can. Well, indeed, but but with other characters in the family, all I'll say is who knows. <laughs> yes, um, yes. Um, um, and of course, Richard Branson uh, uh, famously in '77 hosted that boat trip um, where the Sex Pistols played, going along the Thames at Westminster. Branson then came on, of course, Sir Richard. We should say he was later knighted. Um, um, where he, you know, created a railway, a transatlantic airline, all kinds of successful businesses, and is now attempting to launch his own space venture. Yes. But the, the point is that the Elizabethan, this Elizabethan period has, has not only completely remade Britain afresh, but it has unleashed uh, talents um, uh, and, and all kinds of diversity that I think would have been completely unpredicted back in the 1950s. Yes. That's why I think it's so important. No one's I don't coming. No. And of course, the trouble is when you're living through it, it all happens so gradually, you probably don't really notice. It needs somebody like Andrew Marr to sort of take a, you know, a, a step back and look at what's happened for you to actually really appreciate how, how different everything has become. It, it's odd. I haven't really heard of history being discussed through the medium of the sandwich before, but clearly, you know, you're absolutely right. It is indicative of just for so much that has, that has changed.
Yeah, I mean, it's almost as if we're so diverse now um, in our tastes and in our enthusiasms, in our relationships, um, you know, in, in the sort of melting pot that, that the United Kingdom has become, that it's almost difficult to imagine in areas of music or in areas of, of, of food or other areas where, um, where you could retain any degree of shock value. I mean, think for example, about Britain's role in the development of Bangra music, you know, a sort of melange of Western rock and trad traditional Indian folk music with groups like Monsoon um, in the 1980s. Um, you, you're now at a stage where um, it, in the world of food, you know, which of course in the 1950s was dire and the French were laughing at us throughout the 50s and mm. 70s. Well, they're not laughing now because actually British restaurants, the sort of creativity here we have here, the sort of the mixing of foods um, is almost boundless, and it's almost impossible, I think, now uh, to um, to to come up with what I would call shock value. Yeah, so there are there are more cheeses, be more artisan cheesemakers now in the UK than there are in France. Um, our wines keep winning in blind tastings against French wines. Um, I mean, it's so much strange. And yet, when you and I were were younger, I mean, the big joke was was British rail sandwiches, which were curling and disgusting and horrible. Nobody would be able to sell those now. Indeed, and of course, the real irony of that was that they were so bad, this is absolutely true, that British Rail, this is when it was nationalised, created a committee to analyse how they could produce a non-curling <laughs> British Rail cheese sandwich. They formed a committee, and they actually paid Prue Leith to mm. sit on that committee to advise them. You can imagine this, or some Soviet planning committee. Yes, yes, how yes. How to make a good British rail cheese sandwich. And as she would be the first to admit, they never managed it because whatever the committee agreed, it just never sort of was fed down yes. the line and onto the stations. Though, of course, we, we lived through the age where most people recognised that perhaps nationalised companies were not the best way of proceeding. But we seem to have gone into the period where people have forgotten those lessons. And now the state seems to be once again becoming the answer to every problem, which Indeed. is in a way slightly depressing i find there is a wonderful as we were mentioning british rail and it's slightly off topic but there is a wonderful story which i'm sure you know that various advertising agencies were pitching for the british rail account peter parker i think was then head of british rail and he was kept waiting in the waiting room and it was in a disgusting state there were papers and magazines everywhere the bins hadn't been emptied properly and he was getting more and more irate and just as he was about to blow his top they sort of came in and met and he started ranting about this and, and they said well this is exactly the perception that everybody has of your company there we are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, wonder story. If, I wonder if they gave him a British Royal sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> no, they wouldn't have been that. Um, <laughs> no, that's far too risky. Far too risky. Right. Uh, let us pause for breath. We will change uh, topic. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Professor Tim Evans um, from Middlesex University in London. So, Tim, what are we going to talk about next? So, I thought there was an extremely good piece in The Guardian written by John Harris, um, and it's called The Decade That Broke Britain, 
the disastrous decisions that left millions uh, in a cost of living crisis. And the reason I think this is a very, very good article is because John Harris uh, uh, is a very, very thoughtful and I think extremely good uh, and bright writer coming very much from the British left. Mm-hmm. Um, and he provided, I think, an excellent overview of the left's view of what has gone wrong um, uh, for so many millions of British people uh, mm. over recent years. And, and the reason I say that is because, Simon, you and I often talk about, um, uh, for example, we, we have discussed some of the, ar- the, the arguments that, that elements of the right in this country talk about vis-a-vis uh, quantitative uh, easing and um, uh, sort of the, the, the bailout that has gone on for banks over the yes. years. And 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 this sort of printing press, this this never-ending uh, uh, money tree that the Bank of England and the government seem to have brought into existence, and the huge rising sort of public sector debt and all the rest of it. We've discussed that, and often we've d- discussed it in fairly conservative terms. And and that it, it is indeed a narrative that is familiar to many people on the centre right in the House of Commons. One person who often articulates this well, this line, is, of course, Steve Baker, MP. But there is a different narrative, and I think it's one that is also important. And what John Harris says in this article is that whereas under New Labour, yes, New Labour was, you know, financially prudent. Um, It took a penny off income tax. Um, It did give greater independence to the Bank of England, uh, but it didn't dramatically increase taxes. Mm -hmm. Tony Blair's government did not push the British state anywhere near the top of the Africa curve or as all the sort of high rates of tax that we're uh, that we're seeing under this conservative government. That, but that nevertheless, that Labour government was able to redirect all kinds of monies I- into welfare and um, sort of giving people uh, who were on very low incomes all kinds of incentives and support to get out mm. of poverty. So he points out that under the new Labour government, um, uh, they vowed to cut, to cut child poverty by at least a million using measures such as tax credits, which they did. And there was a successful policy and there were all kinds of measures were brought in. But the, really what's happened um, since the Conservatives came to power uh, initially with the Liberals in the coalition under Cameron, on Nick Clegg in, uh, in, in 2010. What's happened is that, that, that universal credit has been brought in. Um, it's been ever more difficult for people to actually access often uh, the welfare and support that they need. And, and we're talking about the poorest people here. We're talking about the, the families with children who are in the greatest poverty. We're talking about people with all kinds of dis- disabilities, people um, who, re- who historically reliant, for example, on disability payments. Um, and, and he talks through things like the benefits cap, uh, the bedroom tax, how precarious work is becoming. You know, no longer do you have a job for life. And indeed, many people don't have really any form of, of you know, of, of contract to speak of now. Then he talks about the period of austerity and the benefits freeze, the cap on public sector um, pay, um, and what he basically says is that, yes, there's this historic argument about balancing, um, you know, making work pay for people. Mm-hmm. But it's also about recognising that three or four percent of a population are always going to require some sort of support. Um, 
and that they can't simply, for a whole range of reasons, get on their bike, to use Norman Tebbit's phrase, that they do need support. And basically, what he's saying is that with all the measures that have, that have, that have, that have been enacted over the last 12 years, and now with inflation hitting 9%, the tragedy is that those who are genuinely most in need are often struggling to get the welfare uh, that, 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 that they deserve. Um, this isn't about saying there should be an enormous welfare state or that it should be profligate. Mm. Or that you, you know, uh, or that you shouldn't make work pay. What this is saying is there are people now, there are people and there are families and there are disabled people who are really and genuinely suffering. And the the system is simply too stress. The paperwork is too great. And presumably made too difficult by the last two years, by the pandemic as well, must have made all of that more difficult. Yes, exactly. But, you know, you only have to look at the sort of the volumes of paperwork that is now required and often four or five week delays to getting any kind of payment. And you start to wonder, you know, well, where is the money going? And is it really going into the hands of those who are most in need and who are mm. most deserving? Mm. And that's the takeaway for me from this article. But boy, is it a good piece. It's hugely detailed and it provides you with it with a huge overview of uh, the Conservatives in power, um, but also it contrasts it with some of the successes that Labour or New Labour, Tony Blair's New Labour previously had. And here I would criticise elements of the hard left. They were very easy to criticise Tony Blair for being too middle of the road, mm. too bland, too social democratic. But boy, did he put extra money into the NHS and boy, did he manage to target um, vastly more welfare at those who were genuinely in need than anyone had previously mm. achieved. And, and he should, I think, be given credit for that. Uh, so it sounds like you think many people should actually try and seek this article out, Tim. So can you can you tell us again um, who wrote it and, and where people could could find it? Yes. So it, it, it it's on The Guardian. It's John Harris uh, was the author and mm. it was published um it was actually published uh, at six o'clock this morning. So uh, it's dated Wednesday, the 1st of June. And it's the decade that broke Britain, the disastrous decisions that left millions in a cost of living crisis. And of course, he talks about you know, the rise of food banks and the rise of sort of almost informal um, uh, self, you know, forms of collective self-help yes. that have been reestablished um, by dint of these failures. But... Uh, um, it, it's a powerful read. It's rather depressing as well. Yes. Yes. Could, yeah, you, it just feels as if the system is broken and one doesn't imagine it be repaired. It, 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 the increasing layers of bureaucracy, just do, do they ever diminish? I don't know. You just feel what, I mean, not only people, the, you know, the poorest members of society, but we're all facing ever more paper. It seems to me ever more paperwork for everything. Well, I think that the you know the digital economy um, has, in some areas, made things very, very um, whizzy and very efficient. I mean, it, it, at one level, when it comes to things like home deliveries or or getting gadgets or things delivered yes. to your office or your home, um, uh, I cannot believe how efficient uh, a lot of these. Um, apps and a lot of this digital mm. economy is. I mean, uh, uh, just one example, I needed a small table the other day and I was in the garden and it was mid-afternoon, I needed a table. Mm. And my wife looked online and she said, well, you can actually have one delivered this evening. And I really didn't believe it was possible. 
And sure, you're enough, not living in the middle of a big city, are you? No, at but the moment. exactly. And sure enough, you know, at seven o'clock, there was a knock at the door and this little table arrived. So there's at one level, we are living um, in almost, uh, for those who can afford it, a golden era of, of consumerism mm. that has stripped away a lot of the transaction costs traditionally involved with getting goods and services. But there are other areas um, um, that, that uh, particularly in the public sector, and I'm sure this is not just Britain, I'm sure it's around the world, where, how can I put it, people are being triaged or or, or governments are trying to restrict the supply of various things by by making the barriers to entry and the hurdles ever higher. And what's the best way of doing it? Well, I mean, it's it's old fashioned form filling and bureaucracy. Mm, yes. Um, and I'm not sure that's fair. Tim, uh, time for us to change topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. Uh, you are listening to The Big Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, who's a professor of business and political economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, what's our final topic for today, please? Our final topic um, is an extraordinary uh, article um, uh, that, um, that, that, that has just been written by someone called J. Merion Thomas, uh, it published in The Spectator, and it's called Medical Emergency, General Practice is Broken. And it, it is clear from this article that, that Mr. Thomas uh, is uh, a doctor, um, and, and, but that for some time he has been very worried about not only the state of the NHS, but people's increasing inability to access timely and effective at GP services. And it really is quite astonishing. Um, he says that in the first year of the pandemic, the records show that there were 90 million fewer face-to-face -face appointments with GPs. That was a drop of 40%. And of these, 70 million happened instead on the phone. So, so 20 million of what would have been expected simply didn't occur. Mm. 70 million occurred uh, on the phone and that what has been happening in recent years is that um, doctors, GPs are working increasingly less. Um, many work now three or four days a week, but not the traditional five. And they're in, they're in, they're really indulging in, in something that, that is called total triage and total triage means that instead of GPs having the opportunity to examine patients, people have to put the details um, uh, in a form or on, a, on an interview with a receptionist about what precisely is wrong with them, mm. symptoms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And often... Yes, information you'd be reluctant almost to share with your doctor, let well, alone exactly. with... It, it can be quite embarrassing. And again, this raises the barrier of, of entry for people who want to access. Now, What's going on here is that, that, that basically um, the, the GPs are working less. They're not seeing people face to face. It's ever more difficult to actually get an appointment with a GP. And so people are presenting and putting, therefore, extra pressure on our A&E departments. And for me, um, not only is this a dire state of affairs, but... Um, it's not one that, that's good for the GPs either. Many GPs 
um, uh, quite frankly, don't want to carry on being GPs, although uh, the government uh, politicians have argued for years they want to increase the number of, of GPs in practice, they're struggling to just maintain the current numbers. There are lots of GPs who wish to leave the profession. Um, and, and, and I think where this is going, this is where it gets very dangerous, is I think that an awful lot uh, of people are simply going to move into the private sector. And we've discussed this before. I think we're going to see a steady growth in private GPs, um, which for the last 20 years, quite frankly, Simon, have been the preserve of sort of London and the M25. There are quite a few private GPs in London, and there are various online services whereby, you know, if you pay, I don't know, 150, 200 pounds, you're guaranteed to have a GP to your home or your office yes. within three or four hours. But those sorts of things are starting to spread nationally now. Lots of private hospitals uh, now have developed their own uh, private GP um, uh, clinics and practices. And of course, there are also sort of these private algorithms that people can buy or download um, these apps that, 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 that will start to um, make predictions as, as to what's going on. Things like Babylon, which again, we've discussed. But the real danger here is that in the next two or three years, UK NHS GP services could be at a tipping point. And it's one thing to have five or 10% of people who, who go privately for these things. But if you have 10 or 20% of the electorate who in effect give up on their NHS GPs and start to pay, that could have serious electoral ramifications. But the numbers in this article are astonishing. Um, and I'll be bumped with you. I thought I was well informed about UK healthcare. What what um, what Mr. J. Marion Thomas uh, has mapped is quite a horrific and fast yes. moving picture. He says fifty eight percent of GPs work three days or fewer per week, um, yeah. which I must say I thought was surprised. But then he points out towards the end. I mean, it like you stresses the urgency of this that there's no financial incentive for GPs. To actually give patients, you know, a decent service. There's, there's virtually no difference in salary between the best GP in the world, in the country, and the worst. You know, he feels if there was some competition in general practice, or GPs were paid on a, on, you know, a fee for for service, actually paid for what they did, then primary care would be that much better. I mean, but but who, which politician is going to dare to stand up in the house and suggest that? Well, that's I think the key point that um, that, of course, where a system places incentives is hugely important and if gps are just given blanket and fairly uniform salaries well whether they're good or bad they're still going to get their salaries mm. but if the system their contract was designed in such a way that there were built in incentives to see people face to face and to do four or five days work a week as you mm. say, yes. then then the incentives would be different what's i think so worrying about this simon is that um, you're right. If people cannot rely on their GP services, if, if a huge percentage of GPs just go on working three days a week, then those who can afford to pay, the people who work, who pay their tax, but then realise the NHS are not there for them, so they pay twice to go private. And if they've got the, the headroom and the wherewithal to do it, they then pay private, then they will 
potentially be paying a lot of money. If they're paying a lot of money, that could create a vortex of doom because many GPs might say, well, look, um, I don't want the blanket uh, government NHS salary. I can earn mm -hmm. a lot more yes. if I then look after these well-heeled um, yes. uh, private patients. And that's where you don't just hit a tipping point, you know, where GP services start to crumble, but you hit one where politicians, uh, people in the House of Commons, won't be able to control the exodus. And we've seen this before. You know, who now, really bluntly, would want to go back to the world of, and it was a joke in the schoolyard, in NHS spectacles. Mm. Um, no, the high street is awash now. I remember those, yes. All the rest of it. Um, and, and, you know, there are many people in this country opt to go privately for hips and hernias and heart bypasses. Um, if that a lot, and and just just on the same topic, people are having terrible trouble getting getting to see NHS dentists. Apparently, exactly. the incident of people actually pulling their own teeth has risen rapidly. Exactly. Well, I'm sitting here speaking to you from Somerset today, and two weeks ago there were reports on the county radio that 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 it was now impossible to find. Uh, a G, uh, an NHS dentist in Somerset who would take NHS patients on, that there was not one slot available. So dentistry, again, is reaching a tipping point um, in many parts of the country. So this, I think, is, is really important. And do I have faith, I'm being really blunt now, do I have faith uh, that there's anyone in the upper echelons of the Conservative government or the Labour opposition um, who really has thought this through um, and can really stitch together a viable world of sort of public-private partnerships between the NHS and the independent sector, as Blair was attempting to do in the early noughties. And I don't think people are. Um, and I think that's very, very dangerous. It's very dangerous for those who are really, really in need and... Mm. And as this cost of living crisis carries on, don't have the high disposable incomes to be able to go privately. Tim, we've ended on two rather more depressing stories that we, that we usually do. I know you'd like to be optimistic. Perhaps next time we talk, but very, very interesting and valuable um, discussion. And I hope, well, I hope there are other people who listen and will be brave enough to try and um, ameliorate um, the situation. I have been talking to Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy, Political Economy, I'm sorry, at Middlesex University in London. Tim, I think we'll be back with me in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.